wonder if you ever had uh, a friendship which became a one-way kind of thing, the kind of friendship where uh, you get the sense that rather than this being this wonderful kind of mutual thing where you just both appreciate each other for, for who you are and your shared experiences together of life, instead you start to realise that maybe this uh, friend of yours uh, is kind of only in the friendship for themselves. For, they're only in the friendship for the things they can get. You start to notice there's a lot of take but not much give. It's always time to catch up for a coffee when they've got problems, but they're never available if you'd like to have a chat. Uh, nobody enjoys these sorts of one-way friendships. Much more rewarding when you, enjoy, when you have that kind of beautiful, shared, mutual trust and love. And of course, the second kind of friendship is the kind of friendship that the scriptures encourage us to have with God through Jesus. Uh, one where uh, we are not uh, worshipping God and trusting in Jesus because we can get stuff from him, but because we're responding to who he is and all that he has done, uh, not because we're hoping that he'll give us a little uh, a few more miracles. And we see something of how uh, the people in Jesus' day were, were starting to respond to Jesus as that kind of one-way friend, like, here's this cool guy who does cool stuff. But the people we see today, uh, they, they operate slightly differently, and we'll, we'll see, kind of see that as we work through the miracles. So let's take a look. First of all, we've got uh, the healing of the official's son uh, in, at the end of chapter 4. Uh, Jesus, we read, is heading back from Jerusalem. Uh, he's made quite the impression there. And we saw last week on his way, he uh, gets waylaid in Samaria, which is sort of halfway between Jerusalem uh, and Galilee. He's uh, kind of converted this Samaritan village uh, through his ministry to the Samaritan woman there. Uh, and uh, now he's picked up and he's carried on and he's uh, heading back to Galilee. And when he gets there, uh, he's welcomed because uh, of all that's happened in Jerusalem. We're not sure what the nature of his welcome is, though John hints there that uh, a prophet is not without honour in his hometown. It's, it seems likely that um, people uh, have enjoyed this Galilean man, Jesus, going up to Jerusalem and kind of sticking it to the man, so to speak. Uh, you know, this uh, Galilean from uh, the back blocks of, um, you know, Bridgewater has gone into Hobart and, uh, you know, told the elites what's what and then rolled on back out and he's got a hero's welcome. And uh, as he's arrived, uh, this royal official turns up and begs Jesus in verse 47 to come and heal his sick son. And it's an interesting response Jesus gives, isn't it, which uh, gives us a window into uh, what was going on for a lot of people at this time. Uh, and when we get into chapter 6, we'll, we'll see that once Jesus starts to bring a hard word, uh, a lot of people start to have less interest in him. But here... Uh, Someone's come, uh, the royal official, asked for healing, and he, he says in verse 48, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. 
sort of like a rebuke, like, seriously, there's more to me than just uh, magic tricks. But the official, interestingly, is not put off by what seems to be a rebuke, not just to him, but to the, to the crowds. The royal official says, Sir, come before my child dies, please. I know you can save him. And then Jesus says in verse 50, go, your son will live. And there's all sorts of responses that the man could have at this point. He could say, uh, are you sure you don't need to come with me, Jesus? Like, you know, I want, like, this is my son we're talking about. He's like super sick. Maybe like you could come with me and we could go check together that my son is well. But that's not what happens. Jesus tells him to go, tells him that his son will live, and the man believes Jesus on his word, and he acts on it. Verse 50, second half of verse 50, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. And we see here something of the true nature of faith. This man doesn't need Jesus to demonstrate a magic trick he just trusts Jesus to be someone who has the power to save, the power to heal. This man has saving faith. This man sees Jesus in part for who he truly is, as best he could in that moment. And this miracle reminds us of what it means for us to have faith in Jesus. It's not enough to simply trust Jesus for what we can get out of him. Rather, we trust Jesus for who he is. That he is God's one and only son. And when we believe in him and his love, we receive eternal life because of what he has done. Bruce Milne says as he reflects on this passage, miraculous signs and miraculous answers to prayer, such as modelled here, may have a certain value as a starting point, making us aware of God's reality, but they remain sterile until they lead us on to a concern for the Christ to whom they point and whose glory they signify. As we live our lives, we too want to make sure that our trust is in Jesus, for who he is, for the glory that's been revealed as he died and rose again victorious and ascended into heaven at the right hand of the Father. We don't want to be in this faith game because it's a good transactional relationship for us. We want to be in it because we know who Jesus is and there's no better relationship for us to have than with our maker. Well, the next miracle uh, continues in, in a similar but slightly different vein. Uh, Jesus goes back to Jerusalem. And just as an interesting side point at this moment, uh, this gospel, John's gospel, uh, is, uh, as many of you may know, quite different in many ways to the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. Uh, and one of the ways in which it's different is in Matthew, Mark and Luke, Jesus has a uh, one-way trajectory. 
in his ministry. So if you read those other Gospels, uh, he starts uh, in Nazareth and Galilee and he goes this way to Jerusalem uh, where he dies and rises. But in John, he goes like this, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. Uh, And scholars basically think that Matthew, Mark and Luke are trying to make a theological point in their arrangement of the story of Jesus, whereas John's literally going for a bit more of a, uh, a, a, a as-it-happened kind of account. And it would make sense that Jesus would, as a Jew in uh, uh, first century Israel, uh, go up and down from Jerusalem, because that's what people did. They went up for festivals, they came back. And so we see here in, this, in uh, chapter 5, Jesus going back to Jerusalem for another festival. And uh, when he gets there, he heads to this place, this pool called Beth, uh, Bethsaida, which is uh, seemingly, we read in the first few verses, a place known for miraculous healings. And when he gets there, he meets this man, 38 years disabled. That is a long, long time. It is just longer than I have been alive. He's helpless. He can't get into the pool. And so Jesus sees him and uh, says, do you want to get well? Verse 6. And the man's response, sir, I have had no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. It's like the dog-eat-dog world that this man lives in where uh, the pool gets stirred, there's a chance for healing, and someone's just like, out of the way, cripple, I'm going in. This man responds to Jesus and says, like... Yes, I want to get healed, but I just, I can't do it myself. I'm helpless. And then Jesus says, out of seemingly nowhere, not, well, lend me your hand and I'll take you to the pool. Get up and walk. Verse 8, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And now there's, there's a range of options, again, that this man has at this point too, isn't there? I remember once uh, when I was at college uh, in Melbourne, uh, one of my friends, he was uh, from the more Pentecostal tradition of the church and uh, I'd been doing some running and I'd injured my foot and I was in a moon boot with crutches. So I was hobbling around Ridley College uh, and my friend saw me and he said, we, we, we can't have this, in Jesus' name, Walk. And he said, chuck your crutches down and take your boot off and go for a walk. And I was like, nah, mate. <laughs> uh, like, I've had an x-ray. Like, this thing's pretty stuffed. Uh, I just really don't want to do that. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm like, like I promise you, I, I, don't, think, I, I don't think it's going to be healed. Like, uh, you know, I had no faith. And my foot didn't get healed. Not because of my lack of faith, just because that's the way things go sometimes. And that's the kind of response the man could have had, isn't it? Like, he doesn't know who Jesus is. Uh, he's, he's come, asked him some questions, and now he's just told him to get up. The, the, the man could be like, mate, what did you smoke this morning? Like, seriously, what, like, what are you talking about? But at Jesus' word, what does the man do? 
He trusts. Maybe he's, maybe he's got nothing better, nothing else to lose, but he, he trusts this man. He stands up. He picks up his mat and he walks. And the contrast here between 38 years of uh, lamely sitting by the pool, wishing to be healed and having no hope, and in an instant at the word of Jesus, he's healed. He walks. It's wonderful. The trust and the faith, trusting this man and taking, trusting Jesus and taking him at his word. And what a response it has. You know, when someone sat by a pool for 38 years, when you've kind of kicked him out of the way so you can get in and get your finger healed or whatever it might be, you kind of remember who this guy is. And so they ask him, who told you to pick up your mat and walk? And we'll see in a moment, this healing on the Sabbath, this is an issue for the religious leaders that we're not going to talk about today. But what we do see is the man isn't really sure. I don't know who it was because Jesus has slipped away. But Jesus comes back in verse 14 and finds the man and says to him something very interesting that I do want to reflect on a little bit today. It says in verse 14, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. That's an interesting thing for Jesus to say, isn't it? See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Does that sound like to you that Jesus is connecting the man's illness with his sin? Maybe. And if that is what Jesus is doing... How do you feel about that? Is Jesus saying that this man's sin is what caused his, his illness and his disability? Certainly, Jesus is connecting his healing in some way with the man's need for uh, moral change. He's saying, you've been healed, you've received grace, therefore you need to live a life of repentance. But I think we do need to just take a moment to kind of think about what we should make of Jesus' instructions here. See you all well again, stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Uh, em and I were talking just before the service about uh, how for many, uh, for a group of people in the world today, uh, getting COVID can be for some a sign of sin because you haven't lived up to all the proper precautions that you could have taken, wearing eight masks and uh, getting vaccinated a thousand times, right? Uh, obviously, that's not... Uh, you've got to take proper precautions, but uh, getting, getting COVID can be seen as a sin. Is that right? What about when you get a cold? What about uh, if you uh, get diagnosed with some sort of uh, serious illness? Is this a result of your sin? And if you get better from COVID or from cancer or from whatever uh, illness or ailment you might have, do you need to stop sinning or something worse might happen to you? How do we understand this scripture properly and what is the connection between sin and sickness 
in the Bible. Well, later on in John's Gospel, Jesus addresses this. He says in chapter 9, uh, verses 1 and 3, you can go have a look if you want in your uh, chair Bibles. As he went along, Jesus, he saw a man born, born, uh, born blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus' response, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Or if we go into Luke's Gospel, uh, in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, we read this story. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. All those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. What these two passages do is they remind us that specific ailments are not necessarily the result of specific sin. However, that's not all there is to say about the matter because there are other passages that do seem to make some sort of connection. So let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29 to 32. Those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep or died. Because if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not, finally, we will not be finally condemned with the world. Paul seems to be suggesting to the Corinthian church that their failure to deal with their sin is connected to uh, their illness. So what are we going to make of all of this? Well, I think we can say uh, some things generally about illness and sin. And firstly, just using kind of logic, we can say, can't we, that in some specific instances you can say that specific illness or tragedy is the result of specific sin. However, of course, you can't do that in many, or if uh, there's not many circumstances where that is the case. But let's think of an example. If I decide to get uh, drunk, and then I decide to drive my car, and then I crash my car, and I get badly injured or hurt or I hurt someone else. There is a clear link between my sin and my sickness, my illness, my injury, my, my, whatever has happened to me in that moment. And perhaps we could argue that uh, in John 5, here with this man by the pool, maybe Jesus did choose to heal this man because uh, his ailment was connected to something. And so his healing of the man uh, is perhaps a, a healing not just of physical illness but implicitly an act of the forgiveness of sin. 
But whilst it's the case that we could think perhaps of specific circumstances where we see a clear line, it's actually near on impossible for us with any certainty to say when that is actually the case. That is, we're not invited by this passage or by the passage I read out in 1 Corinthians 11 to point out to people or to ourselves and say, oh, you're sick. Well, that's probably because you're a liar. Or, oh, you're sick. That's probably because you double-crossed me. That's not what the scriptures are inviting us to do. What they're actually inviting us to do is remind us that sin and sickness are indeed connected because sin is a result of, uh, sickness is a result of the fall which was caused by sin. And what uh, all these passages do uh, is they help us and they remind us of what illness is designed to do how God uses illness in the life of the believer. He uses it to help us to remember our need for him. What happens when you get sick? I know often when I uh, get ill, my first thought is, oh, this is annoying. I don't deserve this. I haven't got time for this. Why is this happening to me? And actually, what I should be doing when I get sick is taking the time to remember that I am a sinful, broken human being affected by the fall and that I need Jesus' healing work in all of my life, physically and spiritually, that I need to be born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus a few weeks ago. When I'm sick, I need to be reminded that this life is not the end point, but there is an eternity that will begin in perfection when Christ comes again. Sickness and tragedy are tangible reminders of our and, our, and the world around us need for the saving and healing work of Christ. Sickness is one of the many visible signs of the sin which has invaded us all and for which all of us need Jesus to cleanse and renew us from. Both of these miracles, we see two people responding to Jesus and his word with faith. And that's our role too to see Jesus for who he is and to take his word and to trust him. When Jesus says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you, I think what he's doing is encouraging the man to keep trusting God because if he doesn't, then the worst fate that will await him is that, not that he'll get more sick, but that he won't keep trusting Jesus and he will spend eternity separated from God. And that's a far worse thing than sitting next to a pool for 38 years being disabled. Without a life lived trusting in Jesus, you and I will suffer eternal death and judgment. 
And that, I think, is what Jesus is ultimately warning the man of, and I think that is what Jesus is ultimately warning you and me of too. Well, both of these miracles encourage us to look to Jesus, to trust him for who he is. They're reminders that illness is a result of sin and that Jesus is the only cure we can receive. We need to trust Jesus, for he alone is the one who has the power to deal with our sin, with that deep spiritual illness. Jesus invites all of us into a relationship with him, into his forgiveness and healing. All we need to do is day by day trust his word. So let me encourage you today to look to Jesus with the eyes of faith, to trust his word, to enter relationship, and in that you will find forgiveness, grace, mercy and love. Amen. Amen.